everyone and welcome to Chatting Creative Arts. I'm here today with the amazing Dr. James Humberston and I'll talk to you a little bit more about him. But today we're going to be having a little bit of a session on composition in the K-6 classroom within Music in the Creative Arts KLA. So welcome James, it's lovely to have you here today. Um, James is the Senior Lecturer in Music Education at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. So thank you so much for being here today, James. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Great. Well, today we're going to be talking a lot about the use of organising sound or composition in the primary classroom and really debunking the myth that surrounds this whole idea in primary classrooms and really unpacking how teachers can use composition in the classroom. So thanks for sharing your expertise with us today, James. So to start with, James, let's hear a little bit about your music education journey, where it started and where it's taken you through the years, all of those kind of things. Yep, lovely. Um, okay, so I went to a little public primary school in the northwest of England with a whole 17 children in it in the countryside and a very musical uh, headmistress who used to sit at the piano and get us to sing along to Android, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. Uh, I started playing piano when I was seven. I took up trombone when I was about 12. Um, but I was always really interested in the idea of writing music, composing. And so before I even really had the skills to write down what I was making up, I'd be making up stuff as a kid. And I was really lucky. I, I played in the county youth orchestra, which would be like the equivalent of arts unit stuff or SYO here in Sydney. Um, and the conductors would say, if you want to write something, we'll play it. And so even as a teenager, I was really lucky to have supportive music teachers around me who would say, you know, yeah, bring us your music, we'll play it, we'll we'll put it on. And 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 so yeah, I followed that. I went off to university to study um composition, done a bunch of composition degrees since. And I also always had technology as a hobby. And actually that hobby got me my first jobs in music, um, which were doing music software stuff. I used to work for a little British company called Sibelius, making some music notation software. And you literally just doing the tech support and stuff. And I worked there for about 10 years, uh, building education features in the end for that. So I've, I've always been interested in music, technology and composition as something together. And finally, I would say that I always promised that I would never become a teacher because both of my parents were teachers. They're both public school teachers in the northwest <laughs> of England. And I used to watch them when the national curriculum was coming in, filling in. Uh, forms all weekend and preparing and marking and working incredibly hard and I always swore that that will never be me uh, but shortly after I moved to Sydney in the early 2000s a friend said would I come and cover his teaching at a school teaching composition specifically for mm -hmm. a term and I went in and did that one little term of just you know one or two days a week teaching music improvisation composition to kids and I just loved it and I found why my parents had been teachers and you know, I, I felt the calling <laughs> so so even though I'd already been studying composition for years then I went trained as a teacher and um, and I also did my PhD I actually did an mteach and a PhD at the same time because I'm an idiot um, <laughs> and I taught for 12 years um, I, I taught at a, at a private school in Sydney where, where they had things like, you know, composers on staff, but I also did a lot of guest teaching all over the world. 
Um, I've taught composition and music technology in China, for instance, New Zealand, yeah, all over the place. And um, and then in 2013, I moved to the Sydney Conservatorium, which for me at the time, I think when I made that move, was really to allow more space and time for writing music. But since getting there, I think I've really discovered that actually my teaching practice and my music education practice, radicalizing music educators, if you like, is actually just <laughs> as important part of, of, of what's important to me in my life as ever. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you call Sibelius a little, little music publishing company or whatever you call them. That's quite extraordinary. Wow. Um, you hear that pattern of the person with parents' teachers resistance all the time and then it, it always happens. We all cave in, don't we? It's that joy that we can share with, with children. Exactly. Um, yeah. So why does music mean so much to you? Tell us a little bit about how it's influenced you professionally and personally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I would start off by saying music means so much to everyone. And I can say that both, you know, just as somebody who loves music and does music every day, because I sort of lead this privileged life. But also the research shows us that music is incredibly important to us when we're children, when we're growing up. It's a part of the culture or the cultures around us that we grow up in. So therefore, it's, you know, it's it's home. Music is part of our sense of home and family. And then we reach adolescence and start forming our own identities. And music is central to that mm. formation of our of our young adult identity. So, so yeah, I'm a professional musician. I know lots about music. Um, but I, in many ways, I feel like its importance in my everyday life is just the same as everyone else. You know, it's a huge part of my identity. It's a huge part of my life. Now I get to actually, I've got the skills to play it and to make it. I've just finished working on a, a show for the Brisbane Festival, which unfortunately, because of the COVID stuff happening, hasn't hasn't been full. But I get to actually write music, you know, for a living as part of part of what I do. And that's great. But when it comes to, you know, why does music mean so much to me? I think it means so much to me for the same reason that it does everyone. It's it's just a huge part of who I am. That that's great. That's really interesting. You you are, you just talked about two things that I thought were very interesting to pull out. Mm. Um, the sensory awareness that you have had as part of this musical journey, and also the um, building of identities. I mean, you and I we've both discussed this before. We've got teenage daughters, and the um, I'm just starting to see how all of the social connect connections are based around the musical identities mm. of all of these girls that that's what they're forming their friendships around and it's fascinating to watch tell yep. us a little bit more about that well i mean it, it is really interesting there's a fantastic study anyone can download it and it's it's very very easy to read from youth music that came out in 2019 they're a charity in the uk and they do a lot of projects working with young people and a lot of them disadvantaged people or, or young people who've been disconnected from society a little bit um but what they did was that they went and uh, interviewed over a thousand young people in the uk and from all different socioeconomic status backgrounds so they got a, a real wide gamut and they're also, um, you know, looking at people who have music formally in their life, who who have piano lessons or or whatever that mm -hmm. thing is, and people who uh, who don't, and and in fact that you know maybe don't have any music classes at school at all. It's just entirely part of their informal life. 
And what they found was that music is the most important, the equal most important thing in young people's lives. This is from the age of nine through to 17. It's equal to gaming. And many of us who are nerdy music teachers were very, very pleased to find out that we're as cool as gaming. Um, <laughs> but of course, it's, and it's because of that identity formation. So when you think about um, what young people form their identity around, and, and typically we tend to think of adolescence, but it begins much earlier than that. This begins in primary school for sure. Um, you know, you have little uh, fashions to do with television shows, or nowadays it would probably be streaming shows, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> You know, you, then you've actually got, you know, pop music self and stuff like that. And all of this stuff gets intermingled. And as you say, it becomes part of friendship groups and parts of group identities and mm. individual identities. And, you know, I, I have, yes, my, my teenage daughter um, has had a sort of, you know, a double upbringing in that she's done the, the classical music thing. She's mm. sung in Sydney Children's Choir. She's performed in the opera, all that kind of stuff. But she has normal teenage friendship groups. Yeah. They revolve around particular uh, musics. I've noticed recently, you know, you get these online influencers and even when those people are making videos about, you know, maybe there's a Minecraft streamer, mm -hmm. that that Minecraft streamer will have a dedicated music style or music interests. Yeah. And so the kids who are into that you know, Minecraft streamer or whatever it is, are also into the music that that person shares or uses. As. So it's it's just so important for kids. And it's really easy for us as adults to poo-poo it. But I don't know why we do that, because no. it's just as important to us as kids. And how do we feel? Like, how do you feel? I, I heard the other day when I was shopping in Woolworths, um, a song that I can remember was was on the compilation, Now That's What I Call Music For, and I can't even remember who it was by, but I'm wandering down this shopping aisle in Woolies, singing along to this terrible pop song from the 1980s. And it's bringing back all these visceral feelings of what it was like to be, you know, a 10 year old kid uh, growing up in that funny small little village in the north northwest of England. So, you know, it is this stuff goes really deep and we shouldn't dismiss that with no. young people. We, we can tap into that. It's incredibly powerful. And, you know, you, you, uh, you'll hear a lot of people saying, oh, kids don't like music. You know, kids don't like music in schools. It's, it's boring, blah, blah, blah. But kids love music. Full stop. Mm. Kids love music. And we can, yeah, we can really tap into that. Absolutely. Um, you, I'm just going to pick you up on one little word that you used in there mm. that I know you use frequently, but just so that anyone listening to this can understand what you're talking about, you use the word musics. Can you tell mm. us what you mean by that? <laughs> well, <laughs> let's not go and read all of the books on on music philosophy. No. Um, in a nutshell, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. So, so what? I, I mean, really, what 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 the sort of the people who are doing the most exciting and interesting stuff in music education have been interested in since the 1960s. This isn't even new anymore. But what they've really been interested in is kids developing learning about music and all of the other lovely learning that goes on with that that we might talk about a bit later. Um, but learning through doing the music. So if it's listening, don't, not, not putting the, the poor kids in, you know, lines and giving them worksheets to fill in and all that kind of stuff, but actually moving and talking and discussing and, and playing along with or singing along with. Um, and 
and also that that when we talk about music in the in the kind of classroom um, context as well in children's lives context that we're not just talking about one music as we define it in fact we've got this we're really lucky in new south wales we've got this wonderful inclusive syllabus that asks us to teach from lots and lots broad variety of musical cultures ones that our children already know about and then also to broaden their appetite for different mm. music and musical cultures and that's why we say musics um, because we we really want kids to be involved in all of the different kinds of music or all of the musics and also all of the musicking. So that's all of the different ways of making and being involved with music. And of course, yeah, anyone out there who's who's terribly fussy about their grammar might say, no, James, music isn't a verb. There's no such thing as musicking. Uh, but in music education philosophy, there is. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, James, for clearing that one up for us. So. You've sort of touched on this, but let's go a little bit deeper. Why is music so important for our students? Yeah. Um, so the first thing I think it's really important to acknowledge, uh, and it, it's this is a big part of, of some kinds of advocacy in education, uh, that there are extrinsic benefits to studying music. Um, so when I say extrinsic, I mean things other than making music. So, you know, you can go and look at the studies on things like improved behavior, sp spatiotemporal reasoning, confidence, self-efficacy, improved mood and socialization, all that stuff. And I want all of the school principals who listen to this podcast to really care about that because those are cherries on top for why we do music. But... That's not why music is important for our students and not why we should be teaching music. We should be teaching music because music is just fantastic. It's an important part of being human. There isn't a modern musical culture or an ancient musical culture that doesn't have music. Music is such a huge part of self-expression. And we want, we're trying to, you know, let's think about what is education for? Is education for getting high NAPLAN results and all that kind of stuff, or is education preparing our kids for life? Now, I would like to argue that we can prepare our kids for life and they might get some nice NAPLAN results on the way, not the other way around. <laughs> and, and music, music allows kids to develop self-expression through music, musical self-expression, to have regular moments of joy in their lives, which by the way, they'll have at home. So we might as well bring them into the class anyway, through music. It allows them to musically explore who they are and how they are in the world. And, and again, I think that really links to what education is for, you know, taking young people and preparing them, to, preparing them as Dewey said, to turn out where, outwards and, and face the world and be part of the world. And on that front, all of the team bits of, of doing music, you know, when we're in a musical group, we're automatically part of a team. But we're not just, you know, part of a team in terms of buzzwords of collaboration. The, the teamwork is for making something beautiful yes. that can't be made by its individual components. So you're teaching kids that together they can do something which is actually totally out of their grasp on their own. It's not just a, you know, okay, we're all going to build a, build a bridge out of uh, paper straws between these two desks where the two smart kids do it and they push the other four kids out of the way or the two bossy kids or, you know, whatever. And, you know, obviously we need to learn geometry too. 
But when you do that musical thing, then you're actually having that aesthetic moment, those purely musical experiences. And they are, as I said before, they're just as important for adults. And we shouldn't, you know, sort of poo-poo them when we see um, mm. kids having those. And, then, and, so, and so we have those experiences. We learn music and we do music for the joy of music and for those musical experiences. And we understand those musical experiences as knowledge themselves. And then if we get any ex- extrinsic benefits... You know, I, I, we can point to the studies where they say, oh, yeah, look, those uh, standardized tests in literacy and numeracy happen to go up in those schools who did a lot of music. Yeah, that's great. That to me, that's icing on the cake. Um, but, yeah, music is important for our students because music is an important part of being human. Wow. Um, <laughs> yes. And that, that look, that's huge. You've covered a lot of stuff in that last little answer. Can I just go back to one thing that you said that may mystify some people you Mm. mentioned an aesthetic moment what do you mean by that yeah um so i think i think one of the things that's happened with music education is that um back in the 1960s when we were formalizing what's become to be our kind of modern curriculum um the arts felt a real necessary to a necessity to justify its place and so what we would tend to do is that we would say well music is very good because it can improve you know it can improve the standing of people it can teach them how to be you know good well behaved that we can make them sing songs about how to be good citizens and and that kind of stuff we can teach them what beautiful is so that that left us then with a, a very kind of classical music based music education and a very sort of strict uh, Western idea of what is beautiful. Whereas to me, when you are actually musicking, to use that word again, when you're actually in music, playing with music, having fun with music, making music, listening, talking, discussing, playing around with, improvising, composing then you are having aesthetic experiences you're actually you're actually getting understandings of those musics and those musical cultures um which um which really contribute to your understanding of the world around you and there's a lot of research about um, culturally responsive pedagogy which is something that came out of america to try and encourage um teachers to engage with their students when they were teaching um, students who had different cultural heritages to themselves. But actually, you know, every musical, I think every music class has some culturally responsive pedagogy in it because we music gives us these opportunities to really uh, connect with our students and connect with them through what I called aesthetic experience. But what, what I mean is that, you know, that that buzzing moment when you're actually doing music. The buzzing moment when you're actually doing music. Beautiful. Thank you. I'm writing that down as we speak. I love it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So a lot of people might be listening to you talking, James, and feeling inspired and thinking, wow, this is fantastic. But I might have limited experience in what I consider to be able to teach music effectively how do I get over that? Is it possible for me to teach if I don't have much experience in music? Mm. How do I go about it? Okay, so I'm going to turn this question on its head. Right. Uh, and I, I really <laughs> want to speak. Di- doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to speak directly to the music, uh, sorry, to the, to the teachers out there 
not just the music teachers out there. I want to 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 everyday classroom teachers. You know, what does that limited experience actually mean? Because there's nobody in the world who actually has limited experience with music. Um, so let's understand what we mean when we say that. We're actually talking about what I'd call old-fashioned music education. That old-fashioned music education, which involves lots of writing notation on the board and lots of doing music theory and getting out instruments and being a conductor of the instruments and being able to sight sing off the score so that you can correctly teach the, the thing right to, to the kids in front of you. And of course, all of that stuff is incredibly useful if you want to do something like run a traditional concert band and those kind of things. And schools have those. And that's fantastic. So I'm not by for one second saying that those aren't fantastic things to be able to do. But what I want to say is that those are not music educations for every child. And when we're in the classroom, we need music education for every child, not just the one whose parents want them to go and get a trumpet or a violin, uh, not just for the ones who want them to be able to read and write music, as good, as wonderful as those things are. So we have to turn the question around and we have to say, what should music education for every child look like? And as soon as you do that, you understand you don't have limited experience because you know children. In fact, you know your children. And that is, we know, the, the best thing that any teacher of any subject can have, right? Knowing the children, the human beings, the people in your class. So if you know your children and you know, and you know your music and you know their music, you don't actually have limited experience anymore because you've got that connection with them. Now, at this point, you're saying, Beautiful. yes, but I still don't know how to actually teach the music class. Yes, I know the kids. Mm. So then I say, don't be afraid, you know, get rid of those notions of the high musical literacy being being useful. Yes, musical literacy is a thing. We can all learn it. We can all go and do some extra professional development if we want to and add that to our teaching. But it's not what we need for the experience of doing music for every child in our music classrooms. So sing the songs you know. Sing the songs that they know or that they would like to sing. Ask them what they want to sing. Obviously, you might be a little wary of some of the music that they'd like to sing. That's okay. These things can happen in negotiation with our kids. They do all day anyway around other things like, you know, the latest TV show or video game or whatever. Don't be afraid. There's this terrible cultural thing in music education where if we're not playing it ourselves on the piano or reading it off a score, we're not doing it properly. That's rubbish. Play the track off, off Spotify. Use a backing track off YouTube. Um, don't worry about having to have things written down. If you can listen along to a song and tap the beat of the song, you've already got enough stuff to start making music, especially in the earlier stages. Um, immediately, remember that most musical cultures around the world, and I'm talking about more than 90%, whether traditional or modern commercial, do music by ear. So if you love music and you know the right music to put on in your classroom, start there. Start with the kids. Start tapping a beat around. Start trying to work out what notes are on the bass line if you've got a random instrument in the class, something. Get the kids to help you and muck in and do it alongside them. And don't necessarily think that proper repertoire means classical music or folk songs out of those old school books. And again... I'm not being anti-classical music. I'm a classically trained composer, so obviously I'm not being anti-classical music. Um, but the syllabus doesn't ask us to just teach classical yeah. music and folk songs. The syllabus asks us to teach a wide variety of musics. They're, they're, I'm saying musics again. Okay, so 
So start with the culturally relevant repertoire, the repertoire that you like and you know your kids will like because you know them well. That's an incredibly valuable teaching resource. What's in your brain and your knowledge of your students. And start with the music that, that, that they like and then work out from there. And if, you know, if, if at that point then you sort of you know, get into that uh, dead end where you feel like you're doing a lot of the same kind of stuff, then that's a great time to start talking to creative arts advisors or get, get online and find other people and find what they're using. You know, if you teach... Um, if you teach year three or you teach year six, you might find that there's a, a specific number of songs that are just in the zeitgeist of the moment. You know, I, it's, it's all, there's always two or three songs that every teacher is doing and they'll have worked out some fun way of, you know, turning it into a body percussion thing or stuff that doesn't require any theoretical music literacy is just a fun, active way of doing it, but involves actively making music. Fantastic. I'm actually working on a teaching strategies guide as we speak, strategies that can be used across any sort of repertoire. So fantastic. I love your idea of starting with something culturally um, appropriate for not only yourself, but also the students in your class and then basically getting out of the way, letting yeah, the students that's right. guide yeah. you along the journey. Okay. Um, yeah, that's right. So, James, talk to us more specifically about composition. So as an overarching process, we know that in the K-6 syllabus it's referred to as organising sound, and we know mm. that that changes when the students get to stage four. Um, mm. You and I have recently had a conversation about research by Elliot and Silverman describing this process as finger-painting sound. Give mm. us your thoughts here. Yeah. So, I mean, organizing sound is a wonderful term. We're very lucky to actually have that and not composition early on because it gets gets rid of a little bit of that idea. But similarly to this idea of, you know, of having prior experience, I think the problem with 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 composition as an idea for lots and lots of teachers. And by the way, this is exactly the same in high school with specialist music teachers. Generally, they hate teaching composition. And the reason is because when we think of composer, and composition, we think of two things. Firstly, we think of a genius, usually a dead mm. white male, um, yep. but some kind of genius who thinks up these ready-made pieces of music. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that they write them down on a score for other people to play. And that's a very fixed idea of what composition and being a composer is. So we have to kind of blow that up. First, I'm a composer. I never, ever sit down with a fully formed piece in my head and write it straight down on a score. So as a composer, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sitting in my studio as we speak, and I've got a bunch of different musical instruments around me. I've got my old trombone behind me, and I've got a guitar. I've got several keyboards. I've got a piano upstairs. And I will sit and tinker and play around with those. I love the, I love the idea of tinkering because it sort of gets us across all of the different well, arts, doesn't it? Playing with things. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why the idea of finger painting sound is a nice idea, because when we finger paint, we dip our finger, our finger into the paint and then we pull it along the paper. We don't sit there saying, what is the fully formed picture that I'm going to create going to look like now? I can't possibly put my finger in the paint until I know exactly how this is going. And also, when we start making it, we don't think this isn't a Renoir, so I must stop, do we? We just no. finger paint. So, yeah. and there's this quite often this thing with teachers who'll say, you know, I can't teach composition because I can't write music like Beethoven. Well, neither can I. You know, I make a living writing music and I can't write like music like Beethoven. Yeah. Like, 
you know, those geniuses only come along once in a But I can write a lot of music, and a lot of people think a lot of my music's great, so that's enough. Um, so with kids, you've got to give them the same permission that you'd give them with that finger painting. So give them a limited number of colors. What's the musical equivalent of a limited number of colors? A different number of sounds. They don't have to be traditional instruments. If you've got traditional instruments, for sure, give them, you know, some chime bars or some xylophones or whatever you've got in your classroom, some percussion instruments. Um, but if you've just got, you know, voices and, and tables and chairs around you, you can, those can be your materials Absolutely. and allow kids to make a cacophony. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually okay. If you look at your average year three finger painting. It's not great. It's really not great, but it is expressive. It does usually show evidence of thinking and evidence of following some kind of artistic model because kids copy that's what kids do right so we can do this with music give them a limited number of paints three or four paints in this case sounds are enough mm. give them a model so give them a song to play along with or give them a, a rhythm to imitate and then say get to painting play around with those sounds, start tinkering. And that's actually what composers do anyway. We've just got this kind of highfalutin idea of what it really is, but it is just playing around. I think that is just such an incredibly powerful thing that you've said, and I hope that message gets across to anybody listening here that we can all do this and it's really a very simple process and it's about allowing our students the freedom to just explore and experiment. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. Sorry. Now, you've talked to us a little, well, a fair bit about composition there. And just in the interest of time, I'm going to push on a little bit further and drill down into notation because you've, you've touched on notation. We know that the syllabus expects us from as early as stage one to begin recognising that relationship between sound and symbol. Um, we know that symbol systems are then interwoven into our outcomes the whole way through. Um, can you unpack your thoughts a little bit for us on notation and how a teacher who perhaps going back to our reference earlier to the limited experience and might be reading that outcome and thinks, I don't actually know how to use commonly understood symbols to represent my works or the students' works. How can I possibly teach that? So can you give us some strategies or unpack yeah. your thinking on that? Yeah. So again, it's another place where in New South Wales, we're really, really lucky because our syllabus is really open on this. Um, and so we, you mustn't be precious about this. You know, you mustn't think I'm not doing notation again, if it isn't the written score, well, as I said, more than 90% of the music out there in the world is made without ever making a written score. So don't make that your benchmark, even if you want to actually get there at some point. So what could um, what could a notation be? If you're doing a song, a notation could be the lyrics. And if you don't even know what the notes are called on the um, on the uh, score, I've seen kids writing, drawing pictures of keyboards and writing numbers on the different keys and, and, and things like that and equivalent things on, on guitars. Of course, we know the classic graphic score and there's lots of good examples of graphic scores around the internet that you can um, have a look at. So we can then kind of use the idea of, um, you know, linear linear time. So pitch being high and low on a, mm. on a sheet of paper and time going from left to right. I would say 
don't discount technology. If you've got some kind of devices that students can use at school, you will have access to some kind of ability to record music into them, whether that's music through a microphone that your kids make and then they can see the wave shape of it, or whether it's uh, MIDI instruments, which means that you're maybe using an on-screen keyboard or something like that, and it can actually save the data. Now, I've, I know I've heard teachers say, well, that's cheating. If you just get the computer to do it and create the notation, then that's cheating. But it's not cheating at all. Get the students mm. to interact with that. What happens if they cut it up and move it around? What happens if they copy it out onto a, onto a piece of paper? Um, when one student looks at another student's work, how do they see the relationship between the musical blobs on the computer screen and what's going on? So all of these different entryways that don't actually require any prior experience are genuine, legitimate music notations. And actually, they relate really well to what's happening professionally in the music industry around us at large now. Now, if we want to move towards music notation, that training is available out there. If you want to go and learn a bit of music theory yourself and you want to draw a treble clef and five lines on the board, then you can. And you can go and learn those things and you can teach kids how to notate simple melodies and simple chords and things but you need to remember the syllabus does not say teach mm. all of the kids to read and write scores it doesn't notation is a fairly loose concept and just like musical repertoire we want kids to have broad experiences so as my old mate Richard Gill used to say sound before sight don't let the notation get in the way of making music and so if you ever find yourself you know you think I've prepared this great activity and you get into doing it, but actually your poor kids are sitting there with, you know, pencil and paper and all sitting, having arguments about how to write something down. Well, now the sight has got in the way of the sound. We're too worried yeah. about, about notating and we're not making enough music. So that's the trick. That's the trick. If you get to that point, you know you've tipped too far over and then bring it straight back to making music. And how many times has that stopped a musical education journey for people. I know that for myself personally, that mine started very much like that with a traditional teacher showing notation and I thought, I can't do this, this is too hard, I don't have formal education in this, there's no way. And then when you have that other teacher who flips the journey for you, that's when you start to realise, actually, I can do this and it's not as hard as you think. Yeah, that's right. And it's very, really important to remember that music is an embodied art. We don't just use make music with our brains. We make music with our whole bodies. And actually, there aren't very many musical cultures in the world where people sit still even when they're listening to music. In most musical cultures, people move as part of experiencing music. M listening is a very active thing. We've The concert hall is a relatively recent invention, and it's only really for one kind of music, and maybe, maybe the congregation role as well in a church. So, not again, not that there's anything particularly wrong with that, but that's just one kind of musical experience. In most kinds of musical experience, we move our whole body and we use our whole body. So if you if you take kids early on in their musical adventures, in their musical explorations, and you make them sit still and write things down, you're actually taking away an important part of the musical experience. So again, we've just got to be really careful. And it is something that's happened in the history of music education that we've put a lot of importance on, 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 on the, lit the literacy of music because we're kind of trying to justify our place in the curriculum up you know against 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 you know maths and things mm -hmm. like that yeah. 
But actually, again, that brings me right back to my early point, really. Music for itself is just a really important part of being human. Uh, and that's enough. Absolutely. And that whole argument about the um, the literacy component with music is just so counterintuitive when it comes to advocacy. We're doing ourselves a disservice. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right. Look, James, I'm going to start winding you up now. I know we could talk for hours and I know, we personally, I know that you can talk for hours. <laughs> So what advice would you give to teachers, just as a final little thought, teachers who perhaps are struggling to start their music education journey, some tried and true tips or messages that you could give to, well, I guess you might give to your students, for example, before they embark on their K-6 prac? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I th I think I already really got to the most important thing, which is know your class, you know, and and the, the nice thing is that we know that that's what teachers do. You know, I, I often say the one thing that's gone missing from from our, our classrooms over the last 20 or 30 years is teacher autonomy. But we actually still have a lot of autonomy. We have we do have time and space to get to know those wonderful mini humans in front of us. And so, um, you know, that would be my same point for for um, for beginning those musical journeys is begin with the kids in front of you. You know, that doesn't ha always have to mean, oh, well, now I've got, just got to do lessons full of Taylor Swift. It doesn't mean that. <laughs> but it just, you know, because you've probably got some some great, great things that you want to bring to them as well. But engage them. You know, we already have a lot of arm wrestling to do with kids in the in the classroom. You know, a lot of a lot of education experts talk about the crowded curriculum and and, and you know, lack of student agency. But music and I would say the performing arts in general, actually, mm -hmm. is just the best time in the week for you to really connect with kids on on uh, about the stuff that's important to them, to give them space to express themselves um, and to just give them little glimpses into what I talked about before about, you know, allowing these young humans to turn out and face the world. Um, yeah, I think I think that's I think that's really the key thing. All right. Look, thank you so much for your time today, James. It's been wonderful talking to you as always. Um, and we look forward to um, hearing about your um, adventures in the future. I'm sure I'm, I've written down a whole page of uh, the next chapters in our podcast series. So okay. <laughs> I think there'll be lots to look forward to. Episode All right, two, another time. <laughs> yeah, thanks again, James. Um, and for anyone out there listening, make sure you, you subscribe to Chatting Creative Arts and we we'll look forward to talking to you again. See you later, everybody.